Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 36. Something that was laid on my heart, I think, as far back as Wednesday. And uh, been laboring on it for days, trying to seek the heart of God and the mind of God for what to share tonight. And I believe that He's given me something, and it's been pressing in to get this, put this together, but I believe it is the heart of the Lord. Matthew 9 and verse 36, near the end of the chapter, talking about Jesus, it says, When He saw the crowds, He had compassion. When Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion has really struck my heart. The compassion of Jesus. Several times in the Gospels we read this phrase, and Jesus was moved with compassion. Aren't you glad He is a compassionate Savior? When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them. That word compassion, I'll start out with a little word study and then move it forward from there. But it's an interesting word. Whatever the word compassion means, it appears a handful of times in the epistles of the New Testament to describe the kind of relationship we should have with each other as believers. Now there's a sermon in itself, isn't it? Our relationship that we should have with each other as believers. And it also describes the attitude which believers should have towards the world. Compassion. As a verb, it only appears in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And every time, it is talking about Jesus. Every time it's talking about Jesus, a couple of times it's in the mouth of Jesus as he would teach about the nature of God. For instance, in Luke 10, when he talks about the Good Samaritan, Jesus referred to that good Samaritan as compassionate. In Luke 15, when he talks about the prodigal son and he comes home to the father, and when the father sees the young son coming back home, Jesus said that the father was moved with compassion. And he ran and, and did things that fathers don't do. I mean, a wealthy landowner running through the town, going a little bit crazy, embracing the son who had shamed him. It says the father was compassionate when his son returned home. And that word compassion is used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to reveal the nature and the character of God, the mission of God, and the nature of the redemption that He's given us. It says that Jesus was moved with compassion whenever He saw the multitudes in the desert. Remember when He fed 5,000 in the wilderness? Do you know why He did it? 
simply because it says, and Jesus was moved with compassion. And later, when he fed another crowd of 4,000 also in the wilderness, do you know why he did it? Again, both Matthew and Mark would say, as they describe that story, that Jesus did it because he was moved with compassion. Compassion forced Jesus. When a large crowd was moving him along, caused him to stop because somebody on the roadside cried out, Jesus, you son of David, have mercy on me. And when the crowd tried to quiet this Bartimaeus, he cried all the louder. And actually, according to Matthew's version of the story, there was actually two blind men. And it says that Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and they followed him. Aren't you glad he has compassion? He's compassionate. He healed them even when their faith was faltering because he had compassion for them. And one of the reasons that Jesus has compassion according to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark when a leper comes to Jesus and says, If you can, you can make me clean. And it says that Jesus was filled with compassion. But it's an interesting study in that particular verse in Mark because it also gives the implication that Jesus was actually quite angry. He was indignant. When he saw what sin had done to somebody, when he saw what sickness had done to somebody, when he saw what disease and death does to people, it fills him with indignation And he responds to that, those needs, with compassion. And Jesus was moved with compassion. And it says he reached out and he touched the leper. And he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus touched the leper. How many know you don't do that? How many know that you're unclean? And this was an act of compassion that must have moved the heart of the leper very dearly and deeply because how long had it been since he ever experienced that human touch? Jesus has no trouble breaking with expected convention and breaking protocol to let love have the upper hand. Allow me to try to give you a definition of what this biblical word compassion means. It's a special word that came into the Jewish language during the time that the Jews were dispersed. And there's many excellent words in the Jewish and in the Greek language that they could have used to describe Jesus. But they didn't choose these words. For instance, there's a word in the language that would express pity. A feeling of distress. When you see somebody ill and it causes you distress. That is not the word that is translated compassion in your Bible. There's another good word to describe sympathy. uh, Suffering with others. To sympathize with them and be affected by what they're going through. 
That's a good word, but that's not the word that is translated compassion. There's another very good word that says to have mercy, to show kindness by some act of benevolence, by assisting, by helping somebody. But that's not the word to describe the compassion of Jesus. The meaning is more than any one English word can convey. It's more than pity. It's more than sympathy. And it's more than mercy. Let me tell you what the Greek word is. You've probably never heard of it. But the Greek word is splanknon. There, I thought you never heard of it. Splanknon. It's actually a medical term. Is there a doctor in the house that might know what it means? <laughs> it's actually a medical term. And what it is referenced to is reference to the inner organs of the body. It may refer to the liver. It may refer to the lungs. It may infer to uh, the intestine. It may refer to the spleen, uh, the inner organs of a person. In other words, compassion is a raw gut-level emotion. I use the word gut on purpose. It is a gut response. It is gut-level emotion. It is a gut-wrenching experience. It's emotional urgency. It's emotional intensity. It's intense passion. It's being pained so deeply that you've got to spill your guts. Have you ever heard that phrase around here? Spill your guts. Have you ever sobbed so deeply that your body shakes with it? Have you ever overcome with emotion so deeply that inside of you is shaking? Anybody had the experience? It's a gut level emotional response. It's you're spilling your guts. Your very inner being is being poured out. You cry until tears become impossible. Your soul has been torn and your soul has been ripped apart. It is a consuming emotional response that you don't think about. It just controls your behavior and that emotion just takes over your personality. That's what compassion is. It is a gut-wrenching response to something. And this emotion takes over your body and it takes over your personality. That's what this Greek word means. You could understand it if I use it in a negative sense. Because if I was to describe somebody who was passionately violent with anger, we could understand that, can't we? That people get in such a rage that they lose sight of everything. They lose, they, they got blinders on their whole being, their whole emotions, their whole mind, everything is consumed in a violent rage and they act and they behave and they don't necessarily even know what they've done. They're blinded by this rage, this, this passionate about that. You know, the old, Old, old Greek people had an, exp- an expression to describe that kind of action. It says they, they vented their spleen. Doesn't make much sense to you and me, but they vented their spleen. 
It means they were consumed with a passion of anger that took over their personality. But the Hebrews use this word in a very positive sense. And what they use the word for, if you can understand the same degree of it, except in a positive sense, it means you experience the intensity and the depths of tenderness. Compassion could be called relentless tenderness. Relentless tenderness. It means the heart feels something is affected so deeply that it has to go out and it has to act and your mind will catch up later. How many know you just felt something, you just had to do something about it, whether it made sense or not? You just have to do something because there was an emotion in you that demanded you do something and respond in such a way and you respond in it and your mind has to catch up later. It has the emotional force of an all-consuming, uncontrollable, gut-wrenching experience that forces you to act and to do something. It's like every fiber in your heart is ripped out of your body And your heart is left bleeding, and your heart is raw. Something has caused this pain. And what you need to do is to respond to that pain, and you need to offset that pain with the equivalent amount of tenderness to neutralize the pain. Did you catch that definition? You have to offset that pain with relentless tenderness. It's tenderness that has to act whether it's rational or not. That's the word that describes the heart of Jesus. When it says he was moved with compassion... That means he was violently angry at what had caused people their pain. And he has to offset it with relentless tenderness to heal it. That's what the word means. It's gut-wrenching stuff. It's not from the heart, it's from the gut. That's what this word compassion means. And so it always results in warm, practical response to need. It means you are emotionally unable to be indifferent. You have to do something. It's, you cannot be indifferent to human agony, but instead, you embrace the situation, you plunge yourself into the thick of the struggle, regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences, and your mind's got to catch up later to explain what you just did. Moved with compassion. Why did Jesus feed the multitude? And why did he multiply bread in the desert? Matthew 14, verses 13 and 14. Let me read them to you. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. But hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them 
and he healed their sick. With that crowd of 5,000 people following Jesus out to the wilderness, there was no question of getting a rest. But instead, there was a depth of longing and intensity of pity that was in his heart for the people because John the Baptist had just been beheaded. Uh, The people felt as if they lost their pastor. There was a deep, sorrowful pain in the common people. They were lost and they were bewildered over what life had thrown at them. They were confused. They didn't know up from down. And when they saw Jesus saw the crowds just trying to look for something... The testimony is he was moved with compassion. He healed their sick. He taught them because they needed some help and some guidance. And he fed them in the wilderness. His compassion was not just towards them, but the Bible says his compassion was to rest on them. That means he shelved his own plans. He was hoping for a rest. He shelved his own plans and he shelved his own needs in favor of the needs of other people. He wanted other people to benefit from his miraculous power. So he healed their sick to bring them comfort and he taught them to give them guidance. And this behavior of Jesus got very predictable. They knew that Jesus had this trait and even though it was inconvenient to go to him and nothing was, he tried to go for a rest and he tried to hide in the garden, he tried to hide on a mountain, he tried to hear, but people went to him anyway because they knew that even though they were inconveniencing him, he would always respond because compassion was his nature. So he shelved his own needs. It was predictable. So this compassion was not just a one-off time, never to be repeated. It was a predictable lifestyle about Jesus. And so, in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, when there's another crowd, this time of 4,000, it says this, During those days another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to them, I have compassion. I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Jesus assumed responsibility for the welfare even though they had come on their own accord. The crowd had been drawn to Jesus and they chose to be nourished by his word rather than be nourished by bread. There had been an intensive teaching time that lasted three days. And you thought I was long-winded. For three days. He didn't even give them a break to go eat. Three days of feeding on his word. But in three days, the crowd had weakened through hunger. And Jesus was aware of this practical issue of nourishment. And even though it wasn't his responsibility, he had compassion on them. And he felt for their need. And he ministered to them. I think one of the greatest stories of compassion, there's a couple there that I like to talk about. One of them in Mark chapter 5. 
It's a story in verses 1 to 20 of what we call the Gadarene demoniac, the man with the legion of demons. It says in chapter 5 and verse 19 of Mark, at the end of the story, when that man who had been set free sees Jesus getting in a boat and about to leave, the Bible says that he ran to Jesus and said, can I go with you? I don't want to be here alone. Can I go with you? And Jesus said, no, but I tell you what, I'll give you a preaching assignment. And in the Gospel of Mark, this man is the first person that Jesus permitted to preach. The disciples didn't even get to preach the chapter 6. This man is the first person to get to preach. But listen to the message that he was supposed to preach. This guy who had been delivered from these demons. It says, go home to your friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for you and tell everybody about the compassion He showed you. Hear that word, compassion. Because this man was a Gentile and he was going to go home to Gentiles and Jesus gave him the, 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 the mandate to prepare Gentiles for the gospel that would come to them later. But listen carefully. To get the harvest field ready for harvesting, what they need to hear is the compassion of Jesus. Did you catch that? What do they what does this world need to hear? What's the message that they need to hear? They need to hear a message about the compassion of Jesus. They don't need to hear our traditions. They don't need to hear our culture. They don't need to hear our our rules and our regulations. They don't need to hear a lot of things. What they need to hear is how this Jesus is a compassionate man. That's the message he was supposed to go and preach. But what is this man's story? When Jesus himself, you are delivered because I am compassionate. Listen to the compassion of Jesus in this story of this man who has a legion of demons. At the end of chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is in the back of a boat sleeping. There is a storm at this boat. The disciples are fearful for their lives. They wake up Jesus. Master, don't you care that we're going to perish? And Jesus wakes up and says, well, boys, what's your problem? And there's this storm. But I like what Jesus does. If you could read this in the Greek, it says that Jesus rebuked the storm. And it was still. But the word for rebuke there is the same word that Jesus spoke to demons. In other words, there was a storm that was probably demonic in its origin. Because Jesus was on a mission. And there was spiritual darkness and forces that did not want Jesus to arrive there alive. And so in this boat, there is this demonically inspired storm. And I am sure from the devil's perspective that his intention was to drown a lot of them. 
But Jesus rebukes the storm. And peace comes on the scene. Aren't you glad he rebukes the storms? And peace came on the scene. And after he rebukes the storm like he would rebuke demons, well, it's now evening time, Jesus steps on the shore of a country called the country of the Gadarenes. The boat lands near a town called Gerasa. Now, just south of this town, you can see it today if you still visit Israel, there's a steep bluff that leads over to a cliff. This place has abundant limestone caverns and it's full of rock chambers that were used to bury the dead. Lurking in one of these rock chambers is this demonized man. How does the Bible describe this man? He's overtaken by a legion of demons. And you know that legion is a military term and it refers to about 5,600 soldiers, maybe 6,000 soldiers. In other words, this wasn't just one demon. This guy had a whole host, a whole army of demons inside of him. He's overtaken. He's not in control of his own mind. His personality is completely submerged to the power of these foreign occupants. His body's not his. His mind is not his. His emotions are not his anymore. He's demonically driven through solitary places by day, and he roams the tombs by night. He is in a pathetic condition. He's mad. He is insane. The local townspeople are terrified of him for their own protection. They have attempted to bind him with chains and with fetters. But no man could bind him. No, not with chains. Not with irons. Nor with fetters. With superhuman strength, he broke every chain that was ever put on him. He could not be subdued. He is like a wild animal. He is untamable. He is uncontrollable. He has no ability to control himself and he has stripped himself naked. Have you ever seen a sight like that? Have you ever been in a room with somebody demonically oppressed like that? I have, many years ago, in India. I was once. I mean, it's a sight to see. It's a sight to see. People have driven this man off to unceasingly wander restlessly in the wild hill country. The attitude and the rejection of the terrified local people could only add to the cruelty of his demonic torment. He is homicidal. Nobody dared go near him. Nobody dared go anywhere close to him because he would kill them, because he was fierce. He was a shrieking animal that walked and wandered among the tombs. And with what little effort he tried to control himself, to exert self-control, he tried to kill himself. He is suicidal. He is constantly self-harming himself with stones among the tombs in a desperate attempt to bring his miserable, hellish existence to an end. Have you ever seen anything like that? The purpose of the demonic realm is clear enough. 
The devil wants to destroy and to distort the creation and the image of God in man. He is full of hate. Have you ever had the experience of being the object of satanic hate? It's not a nice feeling. The devil is out to destroy the image of God in man. Jesus is a man moved with compassion. He goes into what he knew is unclean Gentile territory. He breaks with the expected norms of his culture and his tradition. And he goes to a place of unclean tombs that's full of unclean dead men's bones to where there are herds of unclean swine feeding. This was no place for a Jew. Why did Jesus go there? And how is he going to respond when he sees what he's about to see? The fact is, the powers of darkness certainly didn't want him to go there. Have you ever been opposed in the will of God? Have you ever had the powers of darkness throw everything at you to stop you from moving forward in what you know God's will to be? The powers of darkness certainly didn't want him to be there. They had already thrown a storm at sea in order to drown him. And once Jesus stepped foot on the shore, they immediately throw an entire army of demons at him and at the disciples in this deranged lunatic of a man. Jesus was face to face with an extreme manifestation of demonic power and influence. Is Jesus going to flinch? Why did he go there? I'll tell you why he went there. He had a gut-wrenching emotion called compassion. That's why he went there. Is he going to flinch when he sees the enormity of the battle? But listen, prior to this, long time before this, Jesus had already won the power, already won the victory over the powers of darkness. You do remember he spent 40 days in the wilderness, don't you? You do remember his trial and his temptations there in the wilderness. In the wilderness, Jesus had submitted fully and totally to the demands of Scripture in the midst of the most severe form of temptation. In his heart, Jesus had conquered the devil and he came out of that wilderness with the full authority over the whole demonic realm. He came out anointed by the Spirit of God and He was sent out to the world to liberate people from the forces of darkness and to dispel the power of darkness and replace it with the power of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is famous among the demons. And when the demons got wind that Jesus was visiting this area, they tried to drown Him in a sea. They send a whole army to meet him as he gets onto the shore. I repeat, Jesus is famous among the demons. You can say amen or something. Jesus is famous 
I mean, back in Acts chapter, what, what chapters in Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva tried to do something. I urge you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preached. And I like what the demon said. Well, Jesus I know. Paul I know, but who are you? Jesus is famous among the demons. And they want nothing to do with him. They want nothing to do with him. They are violent. They are fiercely defensive because Jesus is a dangerous opponent. The fact is the demonic realm knows that it is defeated. The demons know they are inferior and they are apprehensive of what Jesus is about to do to them. But they also know that the time of their final torment is not yet. Why has Jesus come before the time? And they plead with Jesus, I adjure you, Son of the Most High, torment me not. Excuse me, you are a demon, and your job description is to torment people. And you don't want to be tormented? Don't torment me. Why have you come before the time? What are you going to do? They know they're about to be punished. And so they're attempting to manipulate Jesus through argument. They, they try to control him by giving him the name, the most son of the most high God. What is it between you and me, Jesus, son of the most high God? They bargain with Jesus. They know there is no battle here. Why did Jesus show up? They bargain with him. They're going to surrender. And they argue about the terms of surrender. They don't want to leave the country. They don't want to be thrown in the deep. But when Jesus says, okay, you can stay in the country. Jesus forced them out of the man. They get to stay in the country because the time of their destruction is not yet. And this army goes out of the man and enters this herd of swine. There's about 2,000 of them there. They break out into a wild panic. They make a mad rush and they go down that slope and they lose their footing and the whole herd of 2,000 fall over the cliff into the deep below them where the demons didn't want to go. And now there's this eerie silence. Well, from above, the keepers of the herds had seen it all. Now they're filled with terror. And in wild terror, they run and tell abroad the news in the towns and the countryside what has happened. After all, they're the ones who lost the pigs on their watch. They had never seen a raw demonstration of power like that in their lives. Well, the next morning is a different scene. There's a calm after the storm again. Just like Jesus calmed the storm on the sea, this storm has been called. This deranged man is completely delivered. He is now a disciple sitting at Jesus' feet. He's learning about Jesus. He's clothed and in his right mind. He's been restored to God. He's been restored to himself and restored to society if they would have him. But listen to this. But Jesus is met with unbelief 
And he is met with resistance from the locals. There is no doubt that they have witnessed the supreme, the unlimited power invested in Jesus, but they are a superstitious people, and they're not willing to submit to the demands of the kingdom of God. So they ask Jesus to leave. They must have realized the cost of keeping Jesus around. Reflect with me for a moment. Isn't it sad... They got to keep the demons and they asked Jesus to leave. Isn't that a sad thing? The demons got to stay and Jesus was asked to leave. Why do people choose the wrong things? Why are people afraid of the demonstration of the power of God. Why is it the power of God that is asked to leave? And let's just keep things as we have it. Why? Why, why, why? What a sad thing that they kept the demons and asked Jesus to leave. Not staying where he wasn't wanted, Jesus gets into the boat to leave. But as he's getting to that boat, this formerly demonized man runs to Jesus when he's getting in the boat and he begs Jesus for permission. Can I go with you? Can I be with you? Can I continue to be a disciple of yours? I want to be with you. He yearns to put his past behind him. This living in the tombs, this living in the wild country, I want it behind me. Why should I be bereft of your fellowship? I want to hear you teach. These local people aren't going to want me. They're never going to accept me. It's not time for Gentiles yet to be part of his disciples. So Jesus says no. But he says, I'll tell you what. You can be the first person in Mark's gospel that I'm going to allow to go preaching. I want you to go back home. The time for the Gentiles is coming, but I want you to prepare a harvest for me. And you prepare the harvest by this. Tell them that my name is compassion. Did you hear that? Tell them I'm compassionate. Tell them I have a gut-wrenching experience when I think of their needs. Tell them not all that they're doing wrong. Tell them I'm compassionate. That's the message. I want you to take to those Gentiles. So when their time comes, they already understand who I am. I am compassionate. To prepare a field for harvesting church, we've got to tell people about the compassion of Jesus. That's the message the world needs to hear. Jesus is compassionate. Why did Jesus go in the first place? Compassion drove him. The heart of Jesus was ripped to its core when he saw this hopeless situation. Compassion would not allow him to be indifferent to this wretched man's condition. It wrenched his gut to see the image of God completely distorted and twisted into the image of the devil. It was compassion that set the man Free. Compassion characterized everything that Jesus would ever do. He raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. 
He sent out the twelve disciples to preach, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. In compassion, he fed that crowd of 5,000. He delivers the demonized daughter of a Greek Syrophoenician woman. He continues to heal the sick, making the deaf to hear and the dumb to talk. With compassion, he feeds another multitude of 4,000. And it's with compassion that he responds to the desperate pleas of an anguished father. And you find this story in Mark chapter 9. In compassion... Jesus is going to deliver a young child from a demonic sickness. You see, Jesus had come down from a mountain where he had been transfigured with Peter, James, and John. But when he comes down from the mountain, he finds a crowd that is engrossed in a heated debate. As a matter of fact, it is a fierce argument. And he comes across, there are scribes in that crowd, and those scribes are arguing with his other nine disciples, and they're surrounded by multitudes of people watching this argument between the scribes and the nine disciples of Jesus, because the the scribes are on a fact-finding mission, and they're there to gather evidence against Jesus, and the failure of the nine disciples, their failure to cast out a demon, For the scribes is open territory on which they can build an accusation against Jesus. Where did you get permission to try to exorcism anyway? And if Jesus had given you power, why are you failing to do it? Is it because this Jesus is an imposter? I mean, this is probably the the, the threat of the argument that's going on. And it's going on there. The crowd was so engrossed in this argument between the scribes and these disciples that in this heated argument between the scribes and those flustered, failed disciples, nobody even noticed Jesus approaching. And then Jesus is there and they're all astonished. (laughs) Wish you were here ten minutes ago, this never would have happened. And Jesus shows up and they're all astonished. But he immediately, here's the heart of Jesus, he immediately lands into those scribes. And what are you talking about with my disciples? Why are you embarrassing my disciples in public like this? But before anybody could give an answer, there was a distraught voice from the crowd that spoke up. It seems as if this distressed and agitated man's issue had been lost on the crowd. And why this whole thing started, everybody had forgotten about it. This man was the reason for all this happening. Because you see, this man, in the absence of Jesus, had looked for Jesus but couldn't find him. But he did find nine of Jesus' disciples. And he brought his young son, a child, to Jesus, but he couldn't find Jesus. So he brought him to the disciples, who had been commissioned already to cast out demons and to heal the sick, cleanse lepers, and even raise the dead. They had received that commission already. And they brought them to these people who were supposed to have the ability to do this thing, but they could not produce a miracle. Even though they had experience healing the sick and casting out demons before. And this one, they couldn't do anything. And the scribes jumped on that failure to discredit the mission of Jesus. This distraught father kneels before Jesus and begins to pour out his heart. The inability of the disciples only weakened his confidence that Jesus could do something. And so the father 
spills his guts. Talking about his deaf and dumb son. Talking about the demonic affliction that this little boy experiences. He talks about the violent convulsions. He tells Jesus about the foaming of the mouth. The involuntary gnashing of his teeth. How his body would go rigid. His outer exhaustion. The violent seizures and the repeated attacks against his body. Trying to kill and destroy that lad. Sometimes throwing him in the fire and sometimes throwing him in the water. Once again, I discover that the goal, the evil goal of the demonic realm is to destroy the image of God, even in a child. When Jesus hears this desperate cry of a father, his heart breaks. Listen to the weary exasperation of Jesus when he says, How long? How long? Are we going to be an unbelieving and faithless generation? How long do I have to suffer this? You see, listen to the heartbreak of Jesus. Because he is carrying the burden for this world alone. And he's chosen twelve to share this burden with them. To mentor them and to impart his heart to them. And give them that ability to do what he was to do. And he commissioned them without authority. But they're failing because they're failing. Even these disciples are failing in faith. He had chosen disciples to be with him. But even at this point they remain full of unbelief. They are faithless. He longs to share his mission with them. But they're not getting it. Jesus is lonely. And he's full of anger as he finds himself carrying this burden alone and he can't find anybody to bear it with him. Who will pay the cost to develop an unshakable faith? Is there anybody? How is it the disciples still lack faith and they still have hard hearts? How long must Jesus suffer wishing that he could have people to help him in this mission? But who's paying the cost? His heart is breaking. He's only one man. I need help. I'm just one person. His heart's broken. So he says to the father, bring the boy to me. When that little child is brought to Jesus, when the demon sees Jesus, He immediately rips that child in a violent seizure. Reducing that child to complete helplessness. The malicious intent of that demon is, because he's full of hate, destroy that child in the very presence of Jesus as a sign of utter contempt for Jesus. And he attempts to take the life of that child right before the eyes of Jesus. When Jesus sees this, he's deeply moved. Out of concern, he asked the boy's father, How long has this been happening? The father, seeing his son getting thrown in the fire and the water yet again right in front of Jesus, excruciatingly, 
and out of anguish replies, ever since he's just a child, I brought him to your disciples, but no help. This is only going to end in disaster if help is not forthcoming. And then listen to what he says. Could you have compassion on my son? Could you have compassion on my son? The failure of the disciples had shaken the father's confidence in Jesus. There's never a question of the ability of Jesus, but you are not going to elicit his power by way of challenge. Faith has got to be free from the presence of doubt, but this father's faith is failing in the sight of his convulsing son. He earnestly desires to see his son released, and he cries for help with a faith that is following. But, boy, when that boy takes this fit, it draws more people. And the crowd's getting bigger and bigger. And Jesus doesn't want to turn this into a spectacle. The human drama is too much. Jesus is pained beyond description. He's angered at what sin has done. He's angered at what sickness has done. And he's angered at what demons have done. Compassion is ripping his heart out of him. He's ripped to the gut. He's got to act quickly before the crowd, before this turns into a spectacle. And so Jesus sternly, like he did that storm at sea, he rebukes the foul spirit, come out of him and enter no more into him. And then in front of the crowd, this evil spirit shrieks. And there is a violent tearing of the boy as the demonic power vacates every logic in the nerve endings of that boy's body and his soul and rips him apart. And he falls to the ground and there's nothing left but a heap of flesh lying on the ground. The boy appears lifeless. Many think the demon has killed him. Jesus knows what the future is going to hold. He knows what's going to happen to him. So what Jesus does is he gives a resurrection scene. Jesus takes the boy by the hand who some thought was dead and he lifted him up. He's given a picture of the resurrection. And that reminds us of what happened with the daughter of Jairus earlier on in the Gospel of Mark where she was dead. But Jesus took her by the hand and there was a resurrection scene with the daughter of Jairus. You see, the compassion of Jesus, as he accumulates through human experience seeing so many people suffer, he knows that the ultimate breaking of the power of Satan is going to require his death and resurrection. That sin has to be defeated. And that's why he's acting out these resurrection scenes. To break the power of Satan, sin must be defeated through his death and his resurrection. And because he's feeling so deeply for the needs of humanity, compassion is going to take Jesus to the cross. He has seen what sin has done to people. He sees what sickness does to people. He sees what demons do. people. The emotional force of tenderness on the inside of him 
won't allow him to count the cost. Compassion demands that something be done. So he went to Calvary. And that takes us back to the scripture we started in Matthew 9, 35-38. says this, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous. The laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus is tired of doing this alone. Did you hear that? He's tired of doing it alone. He's looking for people who would enter into his heart. He's looking for people who would pay the price. He's looking for people who would learn unshakable faith and not flinch. He's looking for people that he will that will allow him to be broken so that they could be compassionate as he is compassionate. He looks upon the multitudes with relentless tenderness. I have to offset this human pain. I have to offset this suffering that people go through. And I have to offset it by pouring in relentless tenderness. Relentless tenderness. Relentless tenderness. Relentless tenderness. Relentless tenderness until the pain is gone. Compassion. The compassion of Jesus. So what does Jesus see when he sees the masses? What does it look like? What do people look like when you view them through the lens of compassion? Jesus sees people who are fainting, who are scattered abroad. He sees people who are torn, harassed in life. They're hassled. They're dejected. Jesus sees people whose life is a burden. He sees people who are oppressed. He sees people who are exhausted. He sees people who are toiling. He sees people who are heavy laden. He sees people whose life is just a burden. He sees people who lack direction. He sees people who lack guidance. He sees people with no one to lead them through life. He sees people who are lost in cruel, hopeless bewilderment with no explanation as to why the things have happened in life that have happened to them. He sees the functional people who never had good examples. He sees people trapped in addictions as they're all seeking for love in the wrong places. What does Jesus see? He sees a harvest ready and waiting to be reaped. People need to be brought in for their own good. Now the question is, what do we see? Do we see people with weird lifestyles? People with obnoxious behavior? People engrossed in disgusting sin? Didn't their parents teach them right? What do we see? Who will hearken to the heart of our Savior? Who will learn the lessons of unshakable faith? Who will yoke with Jesus in His mission? Who will allow their hearts to be broken 
until there's nothing left in us except compassion. Let us learn our lessons in our wilderness experiences. Did we learn from them or did we just pass time? Let's press forward in prayer until we're broken before Him. Let's ask God to break us, mold us, bend us. Let's press forward in prayer until the heavens are opened above us, until we're saturated in His Spirit and our hearts are remade in His image. Let's press forward in prayer until compassion becomes the nature of our lives. The harvest is ready, are we? There's a song that says, Everyone needs compassion. With all my heart, with all my heart, I fully believe that's the voice of the Lord to us with all my heart God wants to drive compassion into our hearts until that's what we're known for compassion 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 And our compassionate Savior is in this room tonight. He wants to touch us. He wants to meet our needs. And He wants us to give us, to give Him our hearts. That He might write the laws of compassion in the depths of our being, into the fabric of our hearts. Because he's yearning for people who will share his yoke with him. Who will carry his heart. That's what the Lord desires. Amen.